I want to invite you to open up your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark, Mark's Gospel, in the 14th chapter. I'm going to read to you a very um, short account of one of the events that took place and the words that Jesus spoke in the hours uh, just prior to his arrest in the Garden of Gethsemane. And if you remember, we're just in that moment where Mark has slowed down in his telling of the gospel. The gospel itself tells three years of the life of Jesus, but the majority or the last third of this gospel is, is telling the final week of Christ's life. And then it slows down even further still in these chapters and it tells the final hours of the life of Christ. So last week we were thinking about the events that took place when they were celebrating Passover. Jesus and the 12 apostles, the 12 disciples... And how they ate bread and drank wine. And Jesus said, this is what you'll do until, as a remembrance of me. And then it says this from verse 26 of Mark 14. It says, and when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. This is a garden that's just across the valley overlooking the city of Jerusalem. So they're sleeping nearby. And Jesus said to them, you will all fall away. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I'm raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. And Peter said to him, even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, truly I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. Now, this is a, um, a difficult and dark and um, honest passage. And what we are doing here when we read a passage like this, I think, is we are holding up a mirror. The Bible has the capacity to, um, to make us feel uncomfortable, to make us feel um, a sense of discomfort when we are begin to see ourselves in the pages of Scripture. And it's a little bit like that experience that you may have had from time to time of uh, catching a glimpse of yourself in a mirror and realizing that you were in a state of being disheveled or that you'd had food stuck in your teeth or some other aspect of your appearance that you hadn't quite realized that things aren't right and the embarrassment that sets in and the shame even that can set in when you realize I'm... I'm not as good looking as I thought I was, or I'm not as well presented as I thought I was. And what we find when we're reading the scriptures is that it's like holding up a mirror to our own faces. And we begin to see ourselves in the stories, in the characters, in the the portrait of humanity that's revealed in in the pages of scripture. And the Bible is profoundly honest. And we see this not least in the fact that this particular gospel, the gospel of Mark, remember it's written, of course, by Mark. But who was Mark? Mark was a young disciple of the Apostle Peter. Peter himself was the eyewitness, the source of these stories. And here he is, as it were, telling through the pen of Mark an honest account of his own failure as a man to follow Jesus at the moment when it would seem to have been the most important, when it would count for the most. And why is this? It's because the Bible repeatedly and with great force keeps telling us an honest portrait of human nature. It reveals uh, what the theologians call our depravity. It's not that we're as evil as we could be, but rather that evil pervades our humanity 
entirely. There's no part of you that isn't touched by sin. It reveals our weakness. It reveals our frailty. It reveals the ways in which we're a disappointment even to ourselves. And so when we're looking at this particular passage, and the the question is, what is it that we're seeing about our humanity? And I think the answer is that we're seeing our capacity to fall away. The ease with which a person who loves Jesus can backslide in the Christian faith, can give way to sin, can experience a cooling of their affections, a cooling of their passions. They can feel that the cutting edge of their radical devotion to the Lord is dulled. And I'm not speaking here today about what, again, the theologians would call apostasy. We, in the last passage, we learned about Judas, who betrayed Jesus and sold him for 30 pieces of silver into the hands of the authorities. And Judas was lost. Judas never really knew Christ because he could not have done that to Jesus if he'd known him truly. His heart wasn't enlivened with a real love for the Lord. Judas is, is not the image we're speaking about here today. I'm speaking about the other 11. These men who love Christ, whose hearts are for him, who know him, and yet who still have this capacity within themselves to stumble and fall. And Jesus says explicitly, he says, you will all fall away. He uses this word scandalidsane. It means to cause to stumble or to trip or to fall. And it's describing the experience that you can have in your Christian life where you think you're going well and then before you know it, you're flat on your face. Or you reflect on your, your situation and your spiritual state and you realize that you, you're gasping at the side of the road or that you have, you've, you've gone off course or something's gone wrong. You're not walking with the Lord and you, you seem to have fallen away from grace. You seem to have fallen away from a nearness to him, from a purity of heart, from a passion, from a zeal, from a devotion. Those things may have been true of you at one point, but they're not true of you right now. And this is the capacity that we need to understand and explore today. We sing about it in the, um, the hymn, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. And there's a verse which always resonates with my heart. And it says, Oh, to grace, how great a debtor. Daily, I'm constrained to be. I'm a debtor to grace. Every day, I owe everything I have to the grace of God, it's saying. It says, let thy goodness like a fetter or like chains, like irons, bind my wandering heart to thee. And you think, what is this verse speaking about? What are we praying when we sing this song? Let thy goodness like a fetter bind my wandering heart to thee. Well, the next line says, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. We're all conscious of this tendency, this capacity, this depressing reality of, our, of who we are as humans, that we, we can be walking with the Lord one minute and then we can wander off. And that, that the day-to-day experience of faith can be of warming and cooling. And this is what we're, dis- we're thinking about today. Why is it so important then that we look at a passage like this, as dark and even depressing as it seems, and hold it up like a mirror to consider our own humanity in these verses. And the answer is this, that the Christian life is not just about knowing God, it's also about knowing yourself. John Calvin wrote a great tome, it was in the 1500s, called The Institutes. And this book, it's no exaggeration to say that it actually changed the course of Europe as a continent. But the very first line of that book says, our Our wisdom, insofar as it ought to be deemed true and solid wisdom, consists almost entirely of two parts. The knowledge of God and of ourselves. And he doesn't mean, you know, the the urge within a teenager to go on a gap year and and travel 
uh, Thailand and India to discover themselves. He's not talking about that. He's talking about the ability to see ourselves as God sees us, to know our humanity, to understand the, the depth of our depravity and of our need. This is the first step of what it means to be able to approach God. Unless you can see yourself truly, then you can't approach Him. This is what we're talking about here. The reason is because it's so easy to have a wrong perception of ourselves, to be overconfident. Uh, You see this often when somebody first becomes a Christian, that their life is marked by passion and radical desire, and they want to be radical for God. But often that that is not tempered by a realism And before long, their cluelessness is exposed when they begin to stumble and trip and fall in ways that they didn't see coming. And any of us who've walked with Jesus for any length of time will have been disappointed often enough with our own Christian lives to know this is true. Overconfidence sets you up for failure. You remember back in 1914 when um, we went into war with the Germans, the First World War, And uh, there was a great deal of overconfidence in the British troops, the British Expeditionary Force, who were sent across the channel um, to go and help liberate um, and prevent the Germans from conquering, um, from sweeping over France. And the the Expeditionary Force went out with a smile on their faces, marching through the streets, singing, it's a long way to Tipperary, and the the line was, we'll be home by Christmas. But as it happened, they met these new weapons, machine guns, and then they met gas attacks. And, 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 and what actually transpired was that the optimism of those early days quickly disappeared as their feet were rotting in muddy trenches in the stalemate that was the Western Front in the First World War. And you think how overconfidence led to the deaths of millions of men in those, even in those early years of that war. And this is what we're talking about. When we think about the Christian faith, we need to understand ourselves in a way that is real. I've known too many Christians um, stumble and fall um, because they were not prepared, because they did not understand the cost of what it means to follow Christ, because they didn't see their own frailty and weakness and make adequate preparation or depend on God in the way that's necessary to depend on Him in order to to walk, in order to stand, in order to be uh, consistent and faithful to the Lord Jesus Christ. This is what we want to explore. We're holding this up as a mirror. And the question we're asking when we look at what happens, what Jesus says about these men and what they did, the question we're asking is, what do we see about ourselves in this passage? And I want to show you a few things. The first thing that we see here is our great weakness and, and frailty in our humanity. And Jesus makes this very explicit. He's very, he's very much a realist. Jesus is neither optimistic nor pessimistic. He's always exactly right in his analysis of the situation. And what does he say to them in verse 27? He says, you will all fall away. For it's written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. And what he's speaking about here is how quickly, how within hours they go from that place of intimacy around the meal table with Jesus at the Last Supper, and within a matter of hours, four or five hours, maybe less, they, are, it, they run away. It says when Jesus is arrested, verse 50, it says they all left him and fled. They all ran away. They all abandoned Christ when faced with the real cost of identifying themselves with him. And I should say right at this point, by the way, that it's all the more remarkable that Jesus knew this about them, but still would go to the cross 
on behalf of them and the rest of humanity. They represent us. It shows us the depth of the love that Jesus has for us in that he looks, at his, he looks with sadness on his own disciples and says, you'll all abandon me within moments. And yet he still will go to the cross for them. So what we see is this great weakness. Now, here's the problem. Sometimes when you look at a mirror, you might not believe what you see. You might think it's distorting you. The light's not good. There's, the mirror it has some distortions in it. And you can look at a passage like this and think, I would be different. You know, if it came to it, I, I would die for the Lord. I would profess my love for him, my allegiance to him in the face of mockery or in the face of danger. I, I, I wouldn't fall or stumble into this sin or that sin like so, such and such a person has or like that person has. We can nurture these thoughts in our hearts. But this is kind of the point. When Jesus tells these men, you will all fall away, every single one of them says, not me. Peter's the spokesperson, but look at the last line. It says, they all said the same. Every single one of these disciples nurtured in their hearts the delusion that they were different, that they would not fall away, that they were immune to the dangers of what Jesus is describing here. And, you know, they they had even more advantages than we do in certain respects. They'd been with Jesus for three years. They'd seen the miracles. There could not have been any doubt in their mind about his greatness and wonder. And yet they still have this ability to fall away. And we need to ask the question, what is the weakness that, that, that is being lifted, that's being described, that's being opened up to us that we can see in our humanity here? What is it? What is this capacity in us that we, like them, would all have fallen away also? What is the root problem that makes us so weak? And I think the answer that the scriptures reveal, and which is clearly true in this passage, is that it's always rooted in the problem of unbelief. The Bible consistently shows us that our human weakness, our inability to obey the Lord and to walk with him, is always stemming from a lack of faith or a lack of belief in the word and in the promises of God. The reason why I say that is because Look, these men should have known what was coming. Jesus has told them repeatedly in Mark's gospel, I'm going to die and then I'm going to be raised from the dead. And even here, he says it to them, you'll all fall away. But then he says, but after I'm raised up, I'll go before you to Galilee. So Jesus has very precisely and accurately charted out his destiny and the reasons why they don't need to despair. But when it comes to it, when they're actually confronted with the reality of the danger of Christ being arrested and of the way in which that danger might impact them and their mortality, their safety. In that particular moment, their hearts give way to despair and they run away from Jesus. They abandon him in that moment. And you ask, what's the question? What's the the root reason for that? And the answer is always unbelief. This is our weakness. I want to underline this for you. I think that every failure in the Christian life is always rooted in and stemming from our inability to believe the Word of God. Always. 100% of the time. In the book of Hebrews, this is made very explicit. And the author says this, he says, speaking to the churches, he says, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart 
leading you to fall away from the living God. It's in Hebrews 3 and verse 12. An evil, unbelieving heart that leads you to fall away or to stumble or to trip away from the living God. There it is. And you ask, well, think about the, the ways in which we stumble and fall, like these men did on this night in the Garden of Gethsemane. Think about when you give way to temptation. Why do you, give, why do you sin in ways that you don't want to sin, but you find yourself doing it? Why do you do it? And the answer always is because in that moment, you don't believe the promise of Christ, that he has given you everything you need in order to overcome that sin and that ultimately he'll reward you and, and protect you and that he'll give you more than what the sin is offering. You don't believe it and so in the moment you believe the lure and the temptation and the enticement of the enemy who seduces you and tempts you into sin. Always it's a matter of fundamentally of whether you believe or not. You think, is it really? Isn't it just desire? Isn't it, isn't it passion? Isn't it lust? Isn't it some other thing? Um, that, you know, lack of self-control that goes into our sin? Yes, it is. It's all those things. But those things are fueled by, fed by, rooted by what you truly believe in the deepest part of your humanity. We always give way to temptation because of unbelief. Let me give you another example. Think about cowardice, which I think... When you consider that the scriptures call us to faith and courage, do not fear, it says, more than 300 times in the Bible. We recognize that cowardice is a form of sin in scripture. And I think it's the besetting sin of, of, of British Christians. I think when I consider the weakness of the church in Britain in general, I think that the hallmark of, of, of what, what, what makes us weak, what makes us ineffectual, is cowardice, that we are too concerned with what um, the world thinks about us such that we won't maintain our courage and our posture and our stance and our faith and our belief in the word in the word of God and we want to capitulate and we want to bend and we want to conform to what the world has to say and make ourselves seem acceptable to the world you think what is cowardice about cowardice is always rooted in unbelief because it's essentially the lack of trust that Christ is with us to strengthen us and will give us everything we need and protect us and ultimately vindicate us in glory. If you believe those things, you can face anything, even unto death. If you don't believe those things, then you capitulate. Your faith will be broken in the moment. There's temptation, there's cowardice. Think about another example, apathy. Look, this is, this is something we all go through in moments of our lives. Why do we lose our edge, lose our passion. And you can think about the ways that apathy is expressed. Sometimes it's expressed as prayerlessness. Why do we stop praying when we know that we're called to pray constantly, as Paul says? Why do we stop giving when we're called to be lavish in generosity toward the work of God and towards his people? Why do we um, become lacking in passion and zeal so that we go dull, that we don't worship, that we're not, we're not full of energy and delight in the Lord? Why do we become apathetic? And the answer always is because of a lack of faith, because of unbelief. If you believe what Christ said about the, what, what C.S. Lewis says, his unblushed promises of reward, that Jesus says, you know, he'll reward those who are faithful, who, 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 who bear the cross, who, 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 uh, who uh, pay the price in order to follow him. When you think about what Christ says in terms of rewards, you know, he'll reward you when you go into your room secretly and pray. He'll reward you when you give. He'll reward your, your passion and, er and desire and love and your worship. That Christ will reward you. When we lose our edge, it's always because we don't think he's, those rewards are real. It's unbelief. 
100% of the time, every single instance, every failure in the Christian life, all of our weakness is always rooted in unbelief. And that's what we're seeing here in this passage. You will all fall away, Jesus says. Why? Because of unbelief. That, that little verse I read to you from Hebrews 3 when he says, Take care, lest there be in any of you an unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. He says in the next line, But exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. I just want to mention that because I think that the scriptures show us, and I want to remind you that one of the antidotes to an unbelieving heart that becomes calloused and cold towards the things of God, one of the antidotes is being deeply in and among God's people so that they speak into your life and you speak into theirs and you maintain spiritual zeal and passion and faith in the things of God. We see our great weakness and vulnerability when we hold up this mirror. Let me show you a second thing that we see then. And this particularly is evident in the portrait of Peter here. We also see our pride. I told you that this is an uncomfortable experience. And I I recognize that the points I'm making are, are negative in that sense. But I think it's very important that we see this. We see our pride. Now, let me approach the question like this. If, if we become conscious, as I've just been describing to you, of the fact of our weakness, our inability, our inability to maintain passion and faithfulness to the Lord, when we become conscious of this, how can we overcome weakness in the Christian life? And, you know, if we were to ask that question to the world, how do you, how do you succeed in life? How do you stand upright? How do you achieve? How do you, how do you bear yourself in such a way that you're not a pushover uh, in, uh, by others? The answer that the world always gives is, well, by building up your self-esteem, your self-confidence, so that you can stand upright and say, I'm, I'm something special. I can do this. And you begin to build up who you are and your sense of who you are. And, you know, we talk about being able to fake it till you make it and this kind of thing. But the Bible doesn't allow us to engage in that kind of delusion and false optimism about our human nature. It doesn't encourage us to merely engage in telling ourselves lies so that we'll somehow become more competent and more confident in our Christian faith. And the proof of this is Peter. Look at, look at what happens with this man here. I think that the paradigm verse for what we see in this man is in Proverbs 16. It says, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit, a proud spirit, before a fall. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Now look at the journey of this man. Everything about him is building him up, building him up, building him up, building him up to a point of of confidence. He is in Christ's inner circle. Peter, James and John were his closest disciples and arguably... Peter was, was, was number one in many ways. He also has the affirmation of Jesus. Do you remember that occasion when Jesus says, who do you say that I am? And he says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus turns to him and says, you are rocky. And on this rock, I will build my church. He says, you're Peter. His name means rock. And Jesus affirms him and speaks courage into his heart. And Peter could go away thinking, I'm, I'm something special. He's kind of the de facto leader of the 12. Partly because I think as we would 
interpret it these days, he has an A-type personality. He puts himself out there. He's full of passion, vigor, energy, joy. He's right on the edge all the time. He's the spokesperson of the 12. He's always the first one to speak. If anyone could be said to have developed confidence as a follower of Jesus, it was Peter. He had it all going for him. And what does this lead to? What it really leads to is a state of delusion. It leads to a state of what I want to describe as a kind of preening overconfidence and pride, which actually is his disadvantage in this particular situation. Which is why when Jesus says, you will all fall away, as the scriptures say, I'll strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Peter contradicts Jesus not just once, but twice. He says in verse 29, even though they all fall away, I will not. And he says it again. He doubles down in verse 31. He says, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. Now, what is, where is this coming from in this man? And it's coming from pride. I think this is quite evident. You think it's evident in the fact that he, he differentiates himself from the other 10 men in that room. Or out in that garden. He says, even though they all fall away. I will not. He thinks of himself as one cut above, as something special. And that pride is what elevates his own interpretation, his own assessment of himself, so that he's engaged in delusion at this point. And that delusion is quite clear in what he says when he says, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. He says, I'm willing to be a martyr for your cause, Jesus. I think this kind of confidence that he's expressing is not unlike you know, teenage boys who play war games on computers and imagine that if they were on the battlefield, they would be able to, they'd have what it takes. And any guy who's done that knows that, that state of mind. And it's just a delusion. It's a delusion. It's a complete and utter lie. It's a fabrication. It's a, something that we, 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 we tell ourselves about ourselves, that we're, we're better than we, than we really are. Which is why when... When he actually falls, and we'll read about this account later in, this, in the coming weeks, he, he falls hard. And he crashes and burns. And Jesus has said it to him. He said in verse 30, Truly I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. This very night, he goes from the place of total self-confidence how quickly that dissipates and disappears when in the face of real danger and Peter denies Jesus when he stood around the fire pit watching the trial take place how quickly it's like it's within literally within about 10 or 11 hours that this happens and Jesus says, you'll deny me three times. You know, if he, if he sort of knee-jerked, reacted instantly, oh, I don't know this guy, he denied him once, and we kind of understand that. But he, said, he repeats it. Three times Peter denies Jesus. You know, if a Jewish man wanted to divorce his wife, he had to say, I would divorce you three times because it was the repetition that made sure that it wasn't just a trip of the tongue. He, he means it. And saying it three times confirms and seals it. And it's like, this is what Peter does. He calculatingly and deliberately says, I do not know him. I do not know Jesus. He denies him three times. You think, what a height he falls from. 
Pride goes before a fall. I'm stressing this, friends, because I think we should all see him as a warning. That none of us should think that we're incapable of falling in the way that Peter fell. If anything, it's his pride that makes him more vulnerable. I know that all the disciples fell, but he fell the hardest, didn't he? Because pride led him to relying upon himself. This is the problem. This is the root that we need to understand. It led him to trusting in his own courage, his own conviction, his own ability, the very reason why he fell. The Bible, the Bible is honest enough, as I said right at the start, that we should never harbor those delusions about ourselves. If there's one thing that strikes me again and again about the biblical portrait of humanity, it is the honesty of Scripture. You know, we hear from time to time the tragic stories of well-known Christian leaders falling into sin. And just in those last couple of weeks, someone who was a personal hero of mine, I read the story about his uh, tragic fall into sin, and, and it really breaks your heart. But at the same time, I ought to know, as you know, that when we read the Bible, this is, this is, this is our human nature. The Scriptures never hold up any individual as being a hero worthy of praise and not touched by sin because every single one of them is flawed and broken and damaged and wicked. With the exception, of course, of Jesus himself. And what this presses us towards is not only to realize that we're weak, that we're vulnerable, as I was saying earlier, but also to then to, to nurture this humble realism about what our weaknesses are, about our particular besetting sins, about our particular frailties, about our specific weak points and the ways in which we lack um, courage or love or passion or faith or all these things. Because if we nurture humble realism, and it's not the kind of self-flagellating humility that will cause you to be in the pits. I'm not talking about being coming like an Eeyore. I don't mean that. But when you see yourself accurately, you see your portrait, you know your humanity well, it leads to the dependence. It leads to a, a reliance upon Jesus himself. And this, is, this brings me to my last point. When we see, when we hold up scripture and we hold up this story and we hold it like a mirror to ourselves and we see our humanity, what do we see? We don't just see our weakness and our pride. We also see our need. And I want to think about it like this. Why did these men, to a man, every single one of them, abandon Jesus that specific night altogether at the same time? Why did they all fall on that specific occasion? The answer you might give, well, because we've been describing, they have this inherent weakness. And that's certainly true, but that's always been true of them, and it will always be true of them. We, we are weak humans. It doesn't explain why it happens there and then. And you say, well, it's because they face something they never faced before. They face a threat of arrest and execution. And that's true, they did face that. But actually, they will face that again in the days to come and the years to come. And not even so long, in just a matter of months, they'll be facing that, and they will actually stand up against that kind of threat. 
So that doesn't explain it either. And the answer, if you're asking the question, why did all of them fall on that particular occasion? The answer is given by Jesus when he said this. You'll all fall away, for it's written, I'll strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. The reason why they all fell away that particular night was because Christ was not with them. Because they felt cut off from Jesus. Because of his death, or the arrest and then his death. His absence exposed their need. And this is, these are men who have been trained in the school of Christ for three years in the most intensive discipleship training known to man. And yet as soon as Jesus is taken out of the picture, they're like children again. I think this is the most important thing that we could come away with. What it shows us is our great need for Jesus. I want to put this to you both negatively and positively. The negative way I can express this is that without Christ, you can do nothing. Jesus says this very clearly, doesn't he? In John 15, he says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. But if anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered into the f- and thrown into the fire and burned. His metaphor there is of a, a grapevine. And how the branches of the vine get their sustenance from... Um, from the trunk uh, or the, and the roots, which is Christ. He is the vine, we're just branches. We have in our garden, in our outside space, as we call it here in London, a, pot, a potted jasmine plant. And this week I pruned it back a little bit. These things are beautiful and they stay green all through the year and they flower and have a fragrant uh, smell in the summer. But these branches, as green as they are, are now withering and dying the ones I cut off. And he says, this is, this is you as a Christian. When you're separated from me, the life goes. The power goes. The courage goes. The conviction goes. The radical edge is blunted and dies and withers and you're, you're fruitless in the Christian life. Let me change the analogy. It's a little bit like hair. I've often thought, you know, the scriptures say that a woman's hair is her glory and hair is an exceptional thing. It can really beautify a person. But hair on the floor of the hairdressers, or when it's clogging up a shower hole, a drainage hole, hair is no longer beautiful and glorious, is it? And you think, this is it. When we're attached to Christ, we're full of vitality, beauty, strength, dignity, glory. But when we're wandering away from Jesus, that spiritual life withers and dies in a flash. And you end up dry and brittle. You end up ugly. You end up soiled. You end up dirty. You end up in a position of exposure and darkness. Christians who, re- who neglect to remain near Jesus, this is what happens to us, friends. This is how we can put it negatively. Let me just put it to you positively, though. What Jesus shows them here, he says that the shepherd will be struck and the sheep will be scattered, but then he speaks hope. He says, but after I'm raised, I will go before you to Galilee. These disciples learned a lesson on that night 
that would be with them for the rest of their lives. That when Jesus, when they're not with Jesus, everything they thought they had is as nothing. But when Christ is with them again, he says, I'll go before you to Galilee. He begins to speak grace into their lives. This is what John Piper calls future grace. Christ died for our sins, not just sins we committed in the past, not just sins we're committing right now, but future sins. And Jesus sees their sin, the sin they're going to commit, and he still offers them grace. He says, I'm going to be with you again. And this is what's so extraordinary. When you chart the story of these men, in particular, this man Peter, who failed so abysmally on that night when Jesus was arrested and and he, he, he denied him three times. When you chart his story, you see his, his descent into the pit of, of absolute abject failure. But then you see his elevation to a place of, of usefulness and fruitfulness and courage for the Lord. When we chart his story through the, uh, the, the, the book of Acts and the account of the early church. And I think particularly about stories like this. You know, this is shortly after the day of Pentecost, when they've been filled with the Holy Spirit as Jesus predicted and promised. And then not long after, they heal a man, a crippled man. And the cr- a crowd gathers around and Peter begins preaching. Now think, this is the man who cannot even confess Jesus when he's challenged by a girl at a, at a bonfire outside um, the, the trial on the night that Jesus is arrested. But here he is to the, the crowd in Jerusalem and he says things like this. He says, you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. And then he calls them. He says, repent, therefore. And turn back that your sins may be blotted out. That times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. This is a transformed man. He's absolutely, totally, completely transformed. Not long after that, the authorities, the same men who put to death Jesus, who called for his blood when they, when they brought him to Pilate, those same men charge Peter and John. They say, stop preaching in the name of Jesus. And what, do these, what, what is it that they do? They respond and say, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. They're defending the fact that they healed the cripple at the gate. And Peter and John are filled with courage and this is how they answer. And the authorities, the Jewish Sanhedrin, the men who'd arrested Jesus on that night and had him crucified. It says, now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. And it's not merely the fact that they've been with Jesus. That's not the entire story. It's also the fact that they've been with him, but then that Christ had breathed his Holy Spirit into them. And the promise of Jesus was now with them. Jesus, the last words of Christ in the Gospel of Matthew are, Lo, I'm, I'm, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. This is the difference now for the Christian life. Jesus had not been with them on that night when they denied him. But even though he's now ascended to heaven, his spirit is with us and in you so that you never need to be cut off from the Lord Jesus Christ. It says in the first chapter of the book of Acts, when Christ is his parting words to them, he says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. This is what Peter and the other disciples lacked on the night when they abandoned Christ. They lacked that power. They lacked that boldness. They lacked that courage. But Jesus is saying this, I will never abandon you. Just in case you think, well, that's them. That's the, that's the 12, that's the, or the 11 now, the 11 disciples. They're, they're, they're a little different from me. Remember, of course, that 
This is, this is the same pattern we begin to see in the lives of all the early believers in the book of Acts. I think particularly of the man Stephen. Stephen was no disciple of Jesus. We, we, I, I don't think he ever met Jesus, as far as we can tell. Maybe he heard him from a distance. But Stephen is so filled with the Holy Spirit. In other words, the Spirit of Jesus, the, the power of God that comes to fill us. It says in Acts 6, Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. It tells us that when he's preaching and engaging and debating with the Jewish authorities, it says they could not withstand the wisdom and the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, with which he was speaking. And this is a man who's next generation Christian, just as you and I are, successive generations after the apostles. He's in the same position as you and I are in, Stephen, and yet he's showing us, okay, by the power of the same Spirit who lives in us, you can be a bold and courageous and powerful witness for the Lord Jesus Christ. You can be radical, you can be full of love and zeal. And so it is that Stephen is the first martyr in the early church, stoned to death as he defends the things that he believes about Jesus. And I take so much courage from this. Yes, we've seen the portrait of our humanity in these verses. The weakness of our frailty and our flesh. But we also know that Christ has breathed spirit into us. And so what the scriptures show us is that this is the paradox of the Christian life, right? You can state it in different ways. On the one hand, you can say that the way up is down. You should be wary of anyone who has a swagger in the Christian life, who kind of asserts themselves and thinks there's something special. That person will meet their fall at some point. But the person who's humbled before God is the one who relies on him and whose spirit will then empower and, and give them strength and courage. Paul encountered this in his own life, didn't he? The Apostle Paul. How he, said, he, he tells a story of how he had a thorn in his flesh and how he felt his weakness and how he pleaded with Jesus, please take this thorn away from me. And Jesus' answer to him is so important. He said, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. He was telling Paul that Paul's effectiveness as a preacher and an apostle and a missionary, his effectiveness was tied with his sense of whether he was weak. If he knew that he was weak, then the Spirit of Christ would empower him. If he began to think that he was something special, Christ would not be able to support that. So we see this is the paradox of the Christian life. Maturity is correlated with your sense of reliance and dependence, which is the opposite to growing up as, you know, in the, in the natural. You know, our, our desire for our children is that they become more independent, able to stand up on their two feet, able to make decisions for themselves, wise and godly and strong. We want that for our children. But maturity in the Christian life in some ways is reversed because it's become more childlike. To become more humble about our in inability and our incapacity, our incompetence, so that we will rely more upon the strength of God to fill us. Now, I want to say some closing words before we worship. And I just want to say, firstly, to those of you who are not Christian, perhaps this then will help you to reconsider what the Christian life is really about. One of the reasons why people hesitate and have said to me why they're not sure that they could become a Christian is that they say, I don't think I can live the Christian life. So you imagine that you've got to be at a certain level of strength and, and ability in order to say, okay, I'm going to take this on now. And, you know, in a sense, that's true. In a sense, you have to, you have to 
count the cost, you have to assess it, you have to know, am I willing to pay the price? Of course, all of that's true. But what the Bible shows us is that to be a Christian is to humble yourself. So get on your face before God and say, I, I don't have what it takes to live this life. I need the power of Jesus in me. So let me also address our church, those of you who are believers in Christ. What I've been encouraging us to do is to hold this passage up as a mirror and to see our own ability or inability, the danger, the threat that we can give way to temptation, that we can give way to cowardice and all kinds of things. We need this view of ourselves, not so that we'll stay in a pit of depression and agony, but so that we'll be drawn back to Christ every day. Let thy goodness, like a fetter, like chains, like irons around my wrists and ankles, let thy goodness, like a fetter, bind my wandering heart to thee. Bring me back to yourself, God. Help me every day to rely on the grace that you supply, to repent of sin, to be suspicious of my own nature, to be skeptical of my ability to stand on my own feet so that I will come to you. I will be on my knees before you. I'll pray. I'll receive your spirit. I'll trust in your word and I'll stand on the strength that you supply and so live the fruitful life that I'm called to live. That should be your prayer today. That's what I'm summoning you and calling you to. Knowing that Christ is gracious. I'll go before you to Galilee, he says. You've fallen many times. I know. I have too. Jesus says, I'll go before you. I'll be with you. I'm going to bring you back into the race. I'm going to call you back to my purposes. I'm going to strengthen you again. Let's pray. Joel and Peter are going to come and lead us in a response of worship. Let's pray together, though. Lord, we are um, aware to a frightening extent of our own frailty and weakness, that we are dust. Lord, I want to ask for the convicting power of the Holy Spirit that as we look in the mirror of your word, we won't be like the foolish man who James describes, who looks in the mirror and then walks away and forgets what he looks like. I pray that we'll be able to look in this mirror of your scripture and have a true and accurate knowledge of our own weakness and of the threat and danger of pride in harboring delusions about ourselves so that we will depend upon you And we ask now, I want to open my hands and say, Lord, will you fill me with your spirit? And will you also come and fill your church, our church family? Would you fill us with your spirit so that we'll know how to stand up in the evil day when confronted with temptation, when confronted with threat, when confronted with doubt, when we're confronted with the things that drag us away from you, Help us to stand up in the evil day because the Spirit is in us, empowering us. And we have, we have nurtured a nearness to the Lord Jesus Christ. We're abiding in you. I ask it in his precious name. Amen.